Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water, how to make sustainable irrigation, can water bring peace, how do you uh, keep water clean and and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the US what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the waterline podcast is an initiative of israel new tech a part of the israeli ministry of economy and industry so check it out for everything you need to know about the economics political social behavioral technological and environmental aspects of water search for waterline podcast on itunes or in your android podcast app Hey guys, I have a special announcement for you. Have I ever plugged any of my live shows? Have I ran through, I have these dates coming up and these dates coming up and then you hear it later and the dates have already passed and why are you listening to this? I haven't done that, uh, but I am this time because this is a special event and it will pertain to things in the future as well. I'm recording uh, my next album in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, April 2nd through 4th at the Comedy Club on State, which is my favorite comedy club in the country. And um, it's going to be awesome. I built an act around my um, my breaking my feet and all of the, the crap that I've been going through and, um, and some of the insights that I've gotten from it. And it's uh, the best thing I've ever done. And I'm real excited about it. And I'm not sure when the actual album will be released. I would, if I were to venture a guess, I would say we're aiming for right around June. Um, so, yeah, so that's real exciting. And remember, you can always go to Shane Moss, M A U S S dot com, to um, check out all of my other dates um, coming up. And uh, I'll be adding a lot more soon because I've, I've kind of started getting in the clear of some of these health issues. I hadn't been um, booking a ton of stuff because um, of all of the complications that have been happening um, and all of the work that I had to cancel already. Um, I didn't want to have to cancel a bunch more work on people. And now it is looking like... A, um, it, I have a wound vac. I don't know if you've been following along. I don't. I haven't been giving too many updates, but there has. Uh, a, there's been a vacuum on a hole in my foot from a surgery, <laughs> which I'm uh, supposed to be getting off um, in 
in uh, maybe by the time you're listening to this. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so hopefully when I'm out on the road, I won't be lugging this dumb vacuum, um, around that's attached to a hole in my foot, which has been, um, a pain. But, uh, uh, that being said, it it looks like I'm I'm kind of, I, I may have fought off this bone infection and everything else seems to be looking good. So I just wanted to give you guys an update. Um, I, and I just started physical therapy, um, just yesterday and, um, and, and that's going well. And I feel like my, uh, I feel like I'll be in a, on a cane in no time and who knows, maybe walking, um, without one soon after that, but definitely I think I will be in a, on a cane, um, maybe even just after my album recording so um yeah thanks for um all of the nice messages and keeping up to date with what i'm um doing and everything else and thank you so much for supporting this podcast but enough of all that let's talk about sex are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast today i'm here with nicole prossi who is um, a researcher at the Sexual Psychophysiology and Effective Neuroscience Lab at UCLA. Did I did I uh, say that correctly? I can't it's, believe you got it all out. That's it's, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's an interesting job that you have. I love the job. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. When you're at a when you're at a like a cocktail party and you're meeting new people, how long before you're um, describing uh, <laughs> the tools you use to measure genital response? Uh, I like to see how long it takes them <laughs> to figure it out because I'm pretty introverted. I'll be quiet in the back until somebody asks, and then oh, all of a really? sudden I'm talking a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of what happens with me too. I don't like to tell people that I'm a comedian. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, tell me a joke, and then I'm be expected funny. to like be funny and be on all <laughs> of the time, and so I usually hide it. And then once people find out, then uh, then we get to spend the rest of the night talking about my work. Um, but <laughs> but it is interesting. I was looking at some of your papers with some of your tools and everything, and and um, uh, it, it's interesting because the um, the male genital response is like a pretty straightforward measurement it seems like well there's like sometimes a crooker uh whatever boom that's a straightforward pun um but but the the female there's like um i i heard about this device years ago there's like mm-hmm. all sorts of it seems like a flashlight system going on that's measuring like blood flow mm-hmm there's, yeah, there is. So the the males are not entirely straightforward to give them a little credit. There's a little complexity there, but uh, most people use something called the vaginal photoplethysmograph. Say I wasn't going to fast. attempt to say it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> say yeah. it one more time. I'm going to see if I can actually try to pronounce it. Vaginal. Vaginal. I got that. <laughs> photoplethysmograph. Photoplethysmograph. Yeah. And Woo. that's actually, if you've ever been to a doctor's office and they put that thing on your finger, that's also a photoplethysmograph. Oh, okay. It's just like a tool that's used a lot and you can also put it in the vagina. 
Oh. <laughs> it's very magical that way. And how does it work? How, how are you measuring arousal? Um, so the people that use that tool, which is no longer me, uh, it goes, uh, you insert this thing. It looks like a plastic tampon. It goes into the vagina, and there's a little stopper on the outside to make sure it doesn't go too deep or different depths. And it shines light out into the vagina and measures how much comes back. The light used to be incandescent, so you're literally putting a Christmas light up there, which was uh, all kinds of heat and weirdness. So eventually we made it infrared. So that may, I don't know, maybe a little bit of an improvement. Yeah. Cause I'm, I'm picturing like you take a, I've never, I'm a bit of a prude. I've actually never put like lights in a vagina before, but, yeah, that's pretty um, <laughs> but I, I'm picturing like you put your hand over a flashlight and yes. there's a glow like coming yes. from <laughs> that's between actually, the fingers. So the glow would be a transmissive form. So there are two types basically. So there are some that shine light out and just measure how much gets comes back to it. And then there's another type that sends light out and measures how much goes through. You can imagine though, the vagina is deep enough in the body. It would be difficult to use that type, but we've used it on the labia. So like Hmm. we've clipped a plethysmograph on the labia, uh, and you can then use the kind that goes through the skin or the kind that reflects back from the skin. Hmm. Those also work okay, but there are better ways. And is this, it was always my understanding that females have a bit more of a disconnect between uh, physiological and psychological arousal compared to men, which seems to kind of, they tend to be in more of an agreement. Yeah. So we call that a coherence research. That's how well the, what they're saying, they're experiencing what their body is showing sticks together or fails to follow one another. Uh, but the trick is, of course, guys have very direct visual feedback And it's very hard to take that away. So the question has always been, it seems like, yes, women are less coherent. Those two systems don't vary together uh, as much as they do for men. But if I could take away your ability to tell what your penis was doing, then could you tell? Um... (laughs) Oh, like if you numbed my uh, penis? Like so put that... a sheet in front so you can't see what it's doing. Oh, you I can't see. can't sense it. So like like sometimes I wake up, like, like the, uh, it could be like a feedback loop thing or, or I'm getting physiological. Fe- yeah. Like sometimes you wake up just aroused and it could have nothing to do with anything other than blood flow. But because you're aroused, you look down and you're like, oh, hey, I'm excited. And then you start thinking Time sexual to use this. thoughts. I see. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good that's a good question. Has it been tested? No, it's very difficult to test something like that. The closest thing we have is a very old study where they looked at a component of the urine that's related to general arousal. Uh, as uh, in any way, there's a lot of questions about it, but they they suggested that if you look at that, it doesn't uh, respond or correspond very well to what the guys were reporting. But it was done so long ago, essentially, that it's it's not clear whether that's a real effect or not. So I don't know. Hmm. Be awfully fun. You volunteering? Sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm, <laughs> I've got a lab back here. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I. I uh, what What kind of studies could you uh, could you do on uh, on me? I've always wanted to. <laughs> I, I I've always I've always thought it would be hilarious to to take part in some of these studies that I read about. I think the idea of them in my mind is funnier than like the reality. I think I would be actually very uncomfortable um, with Maybe. some of the things. I don't know. 
know. I, so are, are you, because you're like showing people porn and stuff too, right? And putting vibrators on them, whatever it takes. Oh, did I see that you have a, uh, a, th- a 3D um, printer? We do. For, <laughs> for, yeah. Is it just for making, um, uh, what, do you, what do you call it, um, penis models? Is that, is that your so, term? I like to brag this is our first collaboration with Aerospace. <laughs> so we borrowed their 3D printer and said, don't ask questions, we'll bring it back to you in a month. <laughs> so we borrowed it and we printed out a bunch of uh, penis models. Awesome. Uh, all sorts of different sizes and shapes. <laughs> and it, Have you patented the software for that? <laughs> because once everyone has 3D printers in their homes, that's going to be one of the things they're going to be used for you i would know, imagine we we actually this is how open science we are we have already made the code available online for free really um, wow <laughs> you too can own 33 size varying wow. penis models a scientist doing the lord's work um <laughs> amen <laughs> uh so and and why did you make all of these various models we wanted to study women's preferences for different penis sizes and uh, do it in a more robust way than has been done in the past. So most studies that have looked at women's preferences have a couple of problems. Uh, The main one being they tend to ask about women's preferences for flaccid penis size. I'll just let that sink in for a second. (laughs) Their preference for flaccid penis? Do they have a preference for flaccid size? Uh, They'll report, yeah, preferences. But, you know, if you don't ever ask them, I don't know. It seemed very strange to me. Like, why would you? uh, That's not the state in which you're dealing with it. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. One one hopes. Um, So that seemed very strange to us. And what are they? What are they looking for? Just like a less sad looking flaccid? (laughs) I don't know. So there's. Um, you know, some had looked at just in general, like, uh, do they tend to prefer bigger than average? Um, I, Hmm. yeah, they were kind of a strange series. I mean, some, you have to start somewhere, right? (laughs) I suppose. Uh, and you know, aside from that, we're also making a lot of assumptions about women's ability to report size preferences. So a lot of these said, how many inches would you like? Hmm. how do I know how many inches? I don't know. <laughs> I didn't measure when he was here. I don't know what the you know what the what his size was exactly, or right. you know trying to recall back to something like that. So we said, well, then we should do something that's actual that they can touch and hold and say, have some maybe correspondence with something they've seen or felt and uh, and in an erect state and say, you know, which of these have you actually observed for yourself? Uh, which of these would you prefer in this context versus another context? And then we also did a little test to see if they can even remember what size they just saw. No one's ever bothered to test to see if women are reporting something that's real. Hmm. And what did you find? (laughs) So there were a couple of things, at least at a a fairly brief, like kind of a 10 minute delay. Women are pretty good at finding the same penis size they just saw. So who knows if it's a boyfriend from five years ago? That's still a question mark. But at least in the kind of immediate aftermath, women tend to remember that pretty accurately. And um, because every every time that I've ever ended a relationship, my reported penis size is always (laughs) drops dramatically. Yeah, we're terrible that way. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Um, It's okay. (laughs) 
So yeah, maybe that's our next study. You just come <laughs> up with it. Um, see if the most recent boyfriend has an estimated smaller than average size. Yeah. I like that actually. Yeah. The, the, uh, the guy that you feel, um, broke your heart or screwed mm-hmm. you over or whatever. That's, I, I guarantee he lost about two inches <laughs> on that, on that report. Well, there's another surgery for you. Get your two inches back. <laughs> so, um, we were talking about foot surgery right before starting the, uh, to record <laughs> this pod for the listeners. <laughs> so, uh, and then the other piece was, uh, looking at the difference between their preference for size for a, uh, one time partner, uh, also known as one night stand maybe, mm-hmm. or a long term partner and found in general women, uh, once say they desire erect penises that are slightly larger than the average in the U.S., but uh, they wanted quite a bit larger for the one-night stand mm. and a bit smaller for the long-term partner. Hmm. There's hope. <laughs> okay, uh, so so if you're uh, if you have a not if you have a large one, then you're going to do better with one night stands. Whereas if, if you don't, you can be, you can brag about what a safe penis you have or something. Yes, You're a very uh, safe penis, <laughs> very fit for long-term meeting. I'm going to get a t-shirt that says <laughs> that <laughs> safe penis, long-term mate. Here. I, well, you have to have a shirt, right? Cause how do they know until it's already kind of too late? Uh, yeah. I mean, it is, uh, it's, it's, Funny to me, um, you know, our evolved preferences, which are this kind of approximation of these various fitness indicators, um, as opposed to what, you know, the reality of, uh, of fitness is like, like, uh, you know, I, I was, um, before I hurt myself, I was working out a lot and, you know, uh, you know, you, build muscles or whatever and that's that's more aesthetically pleasing for whatever evolutionary uh reasons whatever cues you're picking up on that's saying hey this guy's healthy but um you can also go and get your blood measured and have like oh i have a i have a i've been getting my blood uh pressure measured all the time since i've since this happened and i have a a 110 over 70 blood and i all the doctors are like, you have fantastic blood pressure. <laughs> I'm like, well, say that to the ladies, you know. <laughs> Let them know. You, you would think that maybe I could wear a shirt with a blood pressure cuff on it and then be like, hey, ladies. Why do we look not at- have that? I, but, but you know, you can't change the wiring. No woman's going to be like, ooh, 110 over 70. You're talking to the wrong woman. <laughs> really? <laughs> You know, there's no. women out there for me that I'm going to put this on a dating site. Uh, I, I'm just going to fill out my profile and, and just in large letters, 110 over 70. And you're saying that there's going to be. This one's not going to die on me. <laughs> that's hot. Uh, all right. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. I think that's like what we should be um, looking for. Like if you want, uh, if you want. It, it, it's so tough to determine what like every woman wants a healthy child right and this is part of what um what we're looking for in a mate and you want um someone with a health uh, you, you want someone with possibly good genes that will um give you a healthy uh child help give you a healthy child but there's no way to know like what's good genes in an environment without it being tested well so if you want your kid to live a long healthy life 
you should, in theory, have be with someone that has already had a long, healthy life. Like I think if you were looking for a sperm donation, you would go and find the oldest sperm banks that there are and then see who's still around. <laughs> like 90 years old and still kicking. And then you're like, that guy has good genes. It's a good idea. Yeah, why don't we do that? <laughs> I think there's a lot of reasons why we don't do that. But I'm saying like, the uh, all I'm saying is like the disconnect between intellectualizing, mm-hmm. um, you know, what might be healthy or considered healthy and what our... Um, what our emotions drive us and what our preferences are are like two kind of very different things. Yeah, we seem kind of dumb about it now that you discovered this. <laughs> so inefficient. Uh, well, we do an all right job as humans, <laughs> but it still seems like it's a, it seems a little silly sometimes to be like, ooh, symmetry. Uh, like, <laughs> wow. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's an interesting thing. You You've been trying to research a little bit about... Um, Oh, I have a couple different things that I wanted to ask you. I, I'll, I'll get this one out of the way because we talked about um, Ariely's, uh, Dan Ariely talked about his study with um, people's um, ability to predict their kind of moral judgments when aroused, mm-hmm. even when they aren't aroused. And you've been kind of working on some similar things, right? Very much. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So he has this great first study where he demonstrated that uh, eureka sexual arousal has an impact on your intentions to engage in a variety of uh, unsavory behaviors, uh, unsavory sexual behaviors. And we think this is probably pretty freaking important because <laughs> at this stage with HIV, other infections, uh, people know they're supposed to use condoms. They know how to put it on. They don't need the banana. You know, this is where I think we're more or less, you know, with some exceptions there. So the question is, and now how do you get them to stop? And the problem, I think the primary problem is sex feels good. Mm-hmm. Why on earth would you not want to have sex? So you can't just tell them, you know, well, you know, be careful, watch yourself. We have to understand if someone's in a sexually aroused state, what is that doing to their brain? Is there something we can do to still allow them to have pleasure, but get into a situation that's ultimately more safe? So for instance, part of what we looked at as well, we got people uh, drunk, we showed them porn to get them aroused, and then we looked at how their uh, intentions to engage in sexual risk behaviors changed over time, and whether that had more to do with the liquor or their own predisposition starting out or how sexually aroused they got and the sexual arousal dominated. I mean, it like it didn't, um, it really explains more of their shifts and what they were intending to do sexually Mm. than the alcohol did. So that just said to me, if we are continuing to have these concerns and interests, all these studies about alcohol and about how we're going to teach them where to get condoms and how to put them on at this point, we're behind the curve. We're missing the boat. You know, the main piece is they're getting in a sexually aroused state that's just so intense and so high that they're like, screw it. Let's go for it. I know we don't have a condom. I'm not going to wait. This feels good. I want to do it now. So how do you intervene in that situation without telling them not to do it because they're going to do it? Right. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Too. I, I did read something a while back about it. They kind of tested the idea of beer goggles. And, yeah. and um, I, I forget who did this 
these studies, but they, they kind of found the similar thing that it wasn't so much the alcohol. It was that as the night was getting later and later and there was more people leaving and whatnot, there was, there was less opportunities for mating. And so your standards would just drop whether you, whether you had alcohol in your system or not. Yeah, I think it's maybe two lines there. So they also do find, you're mentioning symmetry earlier, that there's an increase in the perception of symmetry with intoxication. Ah. So you actually do think she looks prettier. Oh, okay. <laughs> it, well, isn't That can't hurt. Isn't it, um, I mean, if you think about it more of instead of, um, instead of finding attractiveness, if you look at the other side of it as like noticing flaws or like mm-hmm. lack of symmetry, then that to me makes alcohol make a lot more sense. If alcohol is making you less able to kind of pick up on um, little bits of flaws and, you know, so you're not picking up on those. So then the person mm-hmm. looks um, more attractive. No, that's an interesting distinction. I'm not seeing made uh, research wise is exactly like, is it more that you're losing those indicators of lack of fitness or that you're over perceiving the, the go signals, the pleasurable, nice stuff? I don't know. I bet that it be because you're, I mean, uh, alcohol's, uh, track record is <laughs> you know pretty bad with with being able to pick up on bad uh you know decision making and well this is the interesting thing so part of why we were interested in it is there were a series of studies that found when people got more intoxicated they were actually being more sexually conservative in their decision and they they believe that that may be because Alcohol broadly is just limiting your attention. So if you're someone who, before you start drinking, you already are kind of, mm, I really shouldn't have a one night stand. It didn't turn out well last time. If my mom found out, that would be terrible. I don't have a condo. Anything that just makes you think this is not a good idea, I probably shouldn't do it. You start drinking and then all you remember is those things, the, the reasons not to do it so that you become more conservative oh. potentially. But I think on average people, you know, it is so pleasurable that most people when they drink those, it's the, the pleasant, we'd say go cues Mm. that you end up pursuing. So it's interesting because there, there do seem to be some people who become more conservative as they drink. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't know. I, hmm. That's interesting. I, I can see when, um, uh, when I used to drink sometimes being like, you know, when I be when I was more experienced as a drinker being like, okay, now, you know, you have to watch out for this now because you've been in trouble with this before. Remember what happened last time? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so I don't know if it's that sort of thing. It is very interesting to me. The, um, just the idea of, of all of the various hats that we wear as far as, um, emotional states and inebriated states, even you, you might mm-hmm. say drunk Shane or a high Shane or, you know, so, uh, you know, implying that, uh, Hey, I'm kind of a different person, but, um, it, uh, when I'm intoxicated or whatever, but, it, but even with emotional states, like when you're in your, uh, absolute worst depressive state and you've, broken your feet and you're having to live in your parents' basement for three months or whatever. Like that person in that emotional state and the person that just got, you know, a promotion or, uh, you know, in my case, uh, you know, landed a TV spot or something like that. Some, 
you know, day where I'm real excited. You can't, you can't even predict how you will feel on like the difference between that horrible day and that good day. And it's like those people can never even communicate um, with one another in a way. It's like you can't, you can't understand like a like a full depression, you know, until you're in it. And you can't extend like the joy of like a roller coaster until you're on that roller coaster. And in much the same way, I do think that it's very difficult to predict, um, you know, like sexual arousal. I, I've been, um, I've been, I, I got out of a relationship. I was in a series of relationships for like 11 years and I got out of my last one in uh, last March. And I was like, I'm just gonna not deal with mating for a while. I'm just going to, uh, uh, you know, try to just not do, mm-hmm. I'm just going to focus on my work and all of that. How's and, that going? Um, it was going good for a while. <laughs> I thought I, it, it's weird to be like experimenting with, uh, celibacy, I guess. Um, but I, I thought I'd, I thought I'd be able to do a year like really smoothly. <laughs> And breaking my feet helped um, measurably. Um, it, it decreased my sex drive quite a bit. This one's broken. We don't want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't. I also <laughs> didn't have to worry as much about girls coming up to me after shows and that sort of thing when I was on crutches. <laughs> so, whew, that was a relief. Um, but, but then I, I mean, I was thinking about this, and and there were uh, there were times when. Um, you know, girls would be approaching me after shows or whatever, and I was like, "Ah, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just." I would usually just say I have a girlfriend or something, just so I didn't have to deal with it. And then, um, like one day out of nowhere, I was just at a bar, and and I like usually really overly ant- intellectualize everything. And I was at a bar, and I like saw this girl at this bar, just some girl, just some random girl, and I was just like, "Oh, I'm in love. I like I'm in love with this person. I'll move to." Uh, Michigan and like start a family. Oh, with this. It was like so crazy. I'm like, Shane, what are you talking about right now? You don't even want a relationship right now. You don't know anything about this person. How long had you been at the bar? Um, oh, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> drinking. I wasn't even drinking. What? If you, yeah, yeah. That's just like, it just, a switch just flipped in my brain and like I couldn't even think straight. Um, so stop messing up my theories. <laughs> I cannot account for this behavior. Uh, what am I messing up? I thought that I thought that would have everything to do with what you're studying. Were you sexually aroused? Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, awesome. Okay, then you were just being stupid. Is that the? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess I was just being stupid. Well, aren't you saying that? Uh, aren't we saying the same thing though? Aren't we saying that like um, when you're in a sexually aroused state? you might not be able to follow through on what like in a non-sexually aroused state what like the decisions that you might be consciously trying to do yes. can go out the window you appear not to be terribly rational and uh yeah so we tried to look to it one piece of that like when you're making poor decisions under the influence of sexual arousal we would say uh, how is it that you're being stupid? Like, are you just thinking like, oh my God, this feels so good and this other thing's going to feel good too and then I want more feel goods? Uh, or maybe it's, uh, you know, this feels so nice. I don't want to deal with anything negative, nasty, you know, so I'm going to try and avoid anything uh, that's risky. Uh, so maybe something like, you know, avoiding negatives happening. And the this final piece that we were checking in this particular study was then just memory. So if you're trying to, in this case, uh, win money was the task they were uh, 
presented with. Maybe you just don't remember, like your memory just kind of gets shot and you're not able to track what you were doing as well. And so you're not making good decisions. And it was interesting to me as amongst those three, I really thought it was going to be the reward idea. So just, you know, sexual arousal feels good. More sexual arousal would feel even better and without a condom would feel even better. And you just kind of go down that road. Uh, And instead it looked more, it was the memory issue. So it Mm. really seemed like when they were in a sexually aroused state, uh, their performance was really poor. Their decision-making was really poor primarily because they just didn't remember what had just happened. They were forgetting really quickly and uh, not able to kind of get their shit together to, <laughs> uh, to choose what they should be doing next. Hmm. Um, that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I, don't think my, um, uh, I don't think my story messed up any of your research. I, I don't know. I think that's still in line with... Um, <laughs> with, I, I still think it, it helps explain um, my crazy brain. Or, or maybe I'm just using this too much as uh, I sometimes use my podcast way too much as a therapy, therapy. session. Yeah. I'll change uh, it. <laughs> so I apologize. I'm very interested in, um, in the individual differences in um, sexual pleasure or feeling gratification. I've always wondered... Um, I, I've often thought about how the sex drive is kind of optimized because, you know, it, you, I, I remember taking in a genetics course and seeing a, um, a bird that, that flies this seed or something up, like someone notices they all drop this seed from the same height and then, and then they start dropping seeds from various heights. It seems that it's like four and a half feet every time. Mm-hmm. And so they drop all these seeds from various heights to see, because the idea being you wouldn't want to waste energy flying up higher than you have to to crack this seed. But if you don't fly up high enough, then when you drop it, it doesn't crack. And then they run all these algorithms and drop these seeds or whatever and see how often they crack. And it turns out that four and a half feet is just the perfect height to be dropping this seed from and evolution's just kind of um, carved that out, um, and and I know like emotional states aren't aren't quite that clean, um, but it does seem strange to me that like if sex feels good, so that we'll have you know sex and we'll reproduce. Why doesn't sex feel better than it does? How good do you want it to feel? I mean, it could, it could always feel better. I mean, if, you know, if, if the point is to motivate us to want to have sex, why not motivate us more to want to have more sex? I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to stump you. Am I asking crazy questions? No, I mean, this, uh, the idea just in general, why some people are higher and some people are lower. Um, So those kind of broad evolutionary questions uh, probably don't inform me as much as they should in what I do. Right. Um, But it's interesting to talk to Marty Hazelton and Jeffrey Miller, other folks who work on that, the type of broader interpretive uh, stuff. But uh, of course, I mean, both men and women vary quite a lot uh, in their, their sex drive, certainly. Um, I think it's interesting. That's one of the few places where when you hear about gender differences, you know, since, oh, it's a math or whatever difference cognitively, uh, those tend to be relatively small between the genders, but it's quite large with respect to sex drive. And that's fairly well replicated, even though people often don't believe that there is a a pretty big average gender difference. Um, 
so then, yeah, why, why should it vary at all? It seems like it should be pretty clearly, though, when, uh, on one end or the other, either by gender or, I don't know, some other selection criteria maybe, but uh, clearly it's uh, quite different. And the people we generally test in my studies tend to be higher drive. So if you, it turns out if you advertise, we'd like to show you porn, we'd like to put a vibrator on you. Oh, I see. (laughs) The people who show up tend to like that kind of thing. Oh, I see. (laughs) That's funny. uh, So unless we specifically look for them, we tend to get people who are on the higher end. Hmm. So how do you avoid that? Yeah, if we're trying to study something like that, then yeah, we have to recruit for them because our studies are an awful lot of fun and it's uh, hard to stop people from... Uh, enlisting so, so I you know I love to use this example we did a study this last year where we had people we were stimulating their brain using a transcranial magnetic stimulation device TMS device that has some relatively small but some risk of seizure and <laughs> uh, can cause headaches and you know has some real risks to consider in enrolling and we also were putting a vibrator on their genitals and uh, watching their responses like during these tests and all this other kind of stuff but what cracked me up is of all of these things, we post this ad on Craigslist and not 30 minutes later, our staff are begging us to take it down because we've had hundreds of phone calls and emails. We got inundated with people <laughs> dying to do this study. And when we actually talked to them, the question that they had was very rarely anything to do with this brain stimulation. It was for, they're like, well, what type of vibrator? Where are you going to put it? <laughs> what type of vibrators yeah, that they wanted to Yeah, so they were know? very interested in the sexual aspect of it. But um, so it, it was just funny to me that kind of the seeing something sexual that was, looked fun and interesting, they were almost discounting the other part that we yeah, thought could, they yeah, would Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could get a seizure. Yeah, whatever. whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's, what's the vibrator look yeah. like? <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, so what are you working on right now that you're excited about? Uh, well, that's probably the biggest one. So we're um, we're working on that is something that can push people's sexual desire level up or down permanently. Really? So the brain stimulation of that type is currently being used to treat depression. And basically for depression treatment, they usually do this after their other depression attempts to treat it have failed. They'll come in and the actual stimulation period is very brief. Uh, but you do it for 20 to 30 sessions, somewhere in that order. And uh, the effects so far look like they last at least a year out, possibly longer. So these changes appear to be at least semi-permanent. And the changes that we were able to induce in the lab with brain stimulation, uh, we were able to push their sexual responsiveness up and down, depending on how we tuned the machine, basically. So uh, there's every reason to think that the work that we're doing, looking to the what's been done in depression and how that's working with other disorders. You know, it may be the first treatment that we can really help people who have low drive, for example, and maybe even high drive. Hmm. That's fascinating. That you so it was easy. You say, what am I excited about? That's what I'm excited about. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. crazy science fiction stuff. Huh. Mm-hmm. Um so how long have you been working on that? And and <laughs> Uh, so I, I guess I don't totally understand exactly how it works. So what part of the brain are you stimulating? Uh, so we're using uh, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex or DLPFC, which is kind of towards the front of the head, but we don't think that's where it's exerting its effect. So um, this 
particular device can't go very deep in the brain. It tends to stay uh, more towards the surface. Uh, you can go deeper, but you hit other things on the way down and then it becomes kind of imprecise. So a lot of people don't uh, use it for anything other than like DLPFC or something very cortical. Um, but we think what's probably happening based on other people's work is that the the stimulation that we're giving in the DLPFC is being propagated downstream to some of the areas sensitive to reward. So it's probably not uh, that we're affecting people's inhibition. So you might think, you know, if the those frontal brain areas uh, tend to be active during decision-making processes, mm. executive functions, those types of things. And initially I was like, well, maybe that, that could be a mechanism. Sure. Like if you're, you know, low sex drive, maybe we just need to release you, you know, right. <laughs> like, like, uh, turn that, that overthinking brain off. Right. Uh, that, that could be the case, but, uh, it seems more likely at this point that it may be the downstream effects. That is some of the, the other areas of the brain that get indirectly stimulated when you go in through the DLPFC. And this lasts for how long so far in your studies? We've uh, just tested it in, in session. So during one stimulation session. So oh, okay. that's our next trials are starting to look at a couple of different aspects of, you know, how can we enhance the effect? Can we enhance the effect? Uh, if we can, how long can we make it last? What if we bring in people and do this over a series of day like they do for depression? Are we going to see the same type of effects? And I think there is every reason to think we will. Hmm. Um, <laughs> that's amazing. It's crazy. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, uh, and and how do you determine if people are um, low or high? You just have a variety of surveys or something? Yeah, that, that is a tough question because a lot of people will uh, say that they're low drive, for example, or high drive, and it's almost always in comparison to a partner. So, for example, if you have a very low sex drive, what do you care if you're single? Right. Yeah, <laughs> great. Less for me to be distracted by. You know? right, <laughs> I right. can now get my stuff done. Um, so, uh, for me, the biggest concern with the low drive treatment would be making sure that it's not just their partner saying like, go get that fixed when really they're quite fine. Yeah, there's no problem. So, uh, we do have questionnaires that have standards for establishing kind of what is, um, you know, atypically high or atypically low, but even in those contexts, you want to make sure that, for example, it's not, uh, just due to depression or just due to something else that, may better explain the problem that they're having. Or maybe it's not a problem at all, but it's some cultural thing where they're all their female friends, if they're low desire, are uh, sex in the city types that are extremely high drive. And so in comparison, they feel low when in fact they're quite fine. So there are lots of interesting questions about uh, trying to identify people who are truly appropriate you know, and really likely to benefit because if we bring someone in who actually has normal drive and do this to them, it's not going to have an effect. It's a, uh, the process primarily seems to be a normalizing process. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's good for us. It's good for patients. If we can find people who actually have higher low drive. Hmm. And, um, what are your feelings about, um, sex addiction? I have some feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I thought that you uh, you might. Some of the stuff that I've read, it seems like you have some uh, strong opinions about it. Yeah, there's... Uh, so anytime you see some new diagnosis being bandied about like this, you have to ask, what exactly 
are they, you know, what is the claim that they're making and is it really adding anything beyond what we already know? And my current feeling is the idea of sex addiction doesn't add anything beyond high sex drive, meaning that there, there's, to my mind, really no good evidence to support some sex is being addicting. That doesn't mean that people don't have problems with their drive. They clearly freaking do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like people get themselves into trouble all the time doing stuff they shouldn't sexually. Um, but the, there are a number of different things people have suggested that are features of addiction. And the great thing is we can test those. And, you know, if you, uh, subscribe to a scientific model, then, you know, if you're, um, if you follow a drug addiction type of model, and one piece of that doesn't hold true, then it's not an addiction. So what we've been doing is systematically going through each of those predictions and saying, okay, you know, if, if this is an addiction, what should it do? It should uh, cause people to be out of control of their sexual behaviors. It should cause negative consequences, uh, such as erection, uh, erectile problems, maybe. Um, it should uh, manifest in the brain as a reward and maybe show evidence of some habituation over time. So they should be, people who are supposed to be addicted should be less responsive in their brain to, uh, to porn or to other sexual stimuli. So we can't test all of this at once, <laughs> but we've kind of gone through piece by piece. And uh, what I think has been most telling is not just that we're not finding evidence in a lot of these cases, but we're finding evidence for the reverse of what an addiction model would predict. So for example, most recently, we looked at um, just people viewing erotica in their day-to-day lives. We said, how much are you looking at? You know, how many hours per week? What would you estimate for us? Um, and we had about 250 of these guys. And then we had them watch porn in the lab. And the addiction model said, you know, if, if porn in this case uh, looks like an addiction, then if they're watching more and more of this stuff, addiction says you're supposed to get desensitized. So my porn is good. I get good stuff, but it's very vanilla. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to go and pick something super extreme because I want it to have some likelihood of being appealing to people in the lab. So, uh, you know, ours is all uh, vaginal intercourse with one man and one woman. Very vanilla by internet <laughs> standards. It's yeah. hard to find our porn because it's so vanilla. <laughs> so, you know, we get this in and if you know, there's some addiction process that people can be going into they should be responding uh, less and less to this porn that they're seeing in the lab if they're watching a lot of it in their own personal life. And what we actually found was the opposite. That is, guys who are watching more porn in their personal life also responded more to porn in the lab. Hmm. So uh, maybe not terribly surprising to a sex researcher, but but to people who really believe the addiction model. Um, you, know, that's, you should have a tolerance. Yes, for, you should be responding less and saying like, what is this garbage you're showing me? Where's my extreme you know, bondage stuff? Where's my, yeah, I'm not going to name other stuff. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so where, where is all of that stuff? And they also, um, the amount that they were viewing appeared to have no relationship with erection problems they had with their partner. Hmm. So some of them had problems, some of them didn't, and it was unrelated to how much porn they were viewing. Hmm. Yeah, I, I was talking with a comic recently who was telling me, I mean, he thinks that he thought for a while he had a sex addiction, but he was, and I was like, okay. <laughs> and then, uh, but he did tell me, I mean, I was pretty blown away. He, he told me he was watching hours of porn a day. Mm-hmm. A day. <laughs> 
That's the that I mean that to me is like well something odd is going on. <laughs> <laughs> like, that, mm-hmm. that, it doesn't seem right. I mean, I, I guess it's not an addiction, um, but uh, I don't know. It still seems bizarre to me that someone would want to do that. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of questions about their. So right when people describe these hours of viewing, we still don't have a good sense of what exactly they're doing during that time. So I'm curious if like. Yeah, is this like a TV show now where they're kind of just watching and that's cool and they're flipping the channel? Are they masturbating the whole time? Are they having uh, several orgasms throughout that period? Because depending on how they're using it, you know, that has a big impact on how we would test what exactly the problem is. Or maybe the, you know, the nature of how they're using it varies a lot between guys and good luck figuring that mess out. Yeah. I don't know, but... These know, are all questions I should have been asking had I been <laughs> on top of things. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, um, you know, there are possibilities certainly of looking at those types of things. And, you know, one of the things I really wanted to do was uh, bring in some of these guys who reported they were uh, porn addicts and have them orgasm in the lab and look at their brain and see if their brain was different during orgasm. That is, for example, are they less sated by an orgasm than guys who don't say they're sexually addicted? Because that's that's what the addiction model should propose, right? It's that this is not keeping them uh, long term. And maybe that was part of the problem, but uh, unfortunately, we're we're not allowed to conduct that study. So, um, wait, you're not allowed to conduct the study where you scan someone's brain while they? Correct. Uh, our local ethics board prohibited us from doing it. They said you're not allowed to do the study. So. Really? Yeah. What? Wait, is there <laughs> is there a reason that they gave for it? It was interesting, actually. This is the first time I've had a study uh, ever re- rejected completely by an ethics board, and they had a uh, throughout the process told us we had to remove the orgasm component from the study, and we said that's the central point of the study. We're not going to remove it. We went back and forth many, many times, and that was clearly what they were insisting on. When they actually rejected it. The reason they rejected it was there were two different boxes we forgot to check off on a form, hmm. which is the first time we'd heard it. So to me, this is very clearly not about checking boxes. It's about not wanting something done on campus um, you know, of a particular form they don't want to be associated with. And it's just, you know, this is one of those American things, I think. Um, you, know, you must run into this quite a bit with... What you do, though. I mean, that's one of the extreme examples, but yes, all the time. <laughs> it, uh, it it is interesting. It's funny because I I mean I I'm a comedian. I make a living telling dick jokes, and I'm still and I'm talking with a sex researcher, and even I still am like, oh, I'll be careful. I don't want to, <laughs> you know, I don't want to get anyone in trouble here. But um, it it is it's it is so interesting that. Sex is still such a taboo mm-hmm. that you can't even research uh, certain aspects of it. That seems completely insane to me. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, to put the positive spin on it, then as a sex researcher, we're in a very cool, unique position because there is so much that is not known in our field that's insane. Whereas if you want to go study depression or you want to go study uh, social anxiety or something, mm. there are you know thousands of scientists that have been working on this problem for decades. And, you know, so carving your space can be really tough in those types of research environments uh, and having a big impact or having a study that's, you know, has something particularly interesting to say is very difficult because there's just been so much work done. In this case, if you're willing to fight the fights, 
you can have some really big impact studies because they've not been done. Do they wear on you or do you enjoy fighting the fights? I am worn down, honestly. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like I'm, I am so at the end of it. So, but I mean, it must just seem so silly a lot of times. Yeah, you're like, why am I putting my head against this brick wall over and over again? So, you know, we're starting to get more creative in the way we approach getting some of the studies done, or at least I am. So, um, you know, we're moving to more of a business model and uh, looking at donors instead of uh federal funders, because if you happen to get federal funding in this field, there's a good chance it'll be taken away. Um, that's happened. So hmm. yeah, <laughs> this is, um, these are bizarre stories and no other field has exactly that. T- you know, I mean, certainly not to say there aren't stem cell researchers or other people who face clear, uh, political challenges in the research they do. Ours are just, they seem so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's strange. Um, it, you know, I don't know if you've um, noticed that. I, I feel like it's, um, I don't know if it's just because I'm a guy, but I don't, I don't think this is the case. I think, um, I think vaginas especially, there's this insane taboo around. Like I can tell dick jokes. Any comedian can go up and tell dick jokes all day long. But like the second anyone like says anything about like a vagina, it's like, oh, don't, don't talk about them. Keep them (laughs) secret. It's the strangest thing to me. And um, I I don't know. I don't know if people are just scared of women's sexuality or I I don't know what it is. But um, yeah, that's, that's, uh, you must have a frustrating job trying to get some of those things through. Did I I hear you right that um that you didn't notice um a correlation between this is going back um mm-hmm. uh, between um watching a lot of porn and erectile problems in a relationship correct i um i guess just intuitively i would have assumed that um porn was causing people's regular sex life to um, diminish or kind of not live up to the Mm -hmm. fantasy world. This is... uh so I would think there are probably some cases where that might might be true, but I think uh, I've been thinking about it maybe a little differently than some of the addiction crowd has. Mm-hmm. So if you think, you know, 30, 40-ish years ago or so, there was a huge concern that uh, vibrators were addictive and they were going to replace men. And while clearly they have and we're no longer mating in this country. No. So, you know, we've had this talk before. Uh, that is, uh, you know, women, for example, um, some men, but mostly women, you know, they use vibrators when they're single, but they probably use them more often. And when you get a new partner, you have to like sometimes kind of get less used to that stimulation and get more used to the new partner stimulation, kind of get back in that groove, so All to right. speak. Uh, and I don't know that that is really any different from porn. So at least kind of transitioning from, you know, if you've been single and you're viewing more erotica because that's your method (laughs) when, when that's what you have accessible. Um, you know, it might make sense that with a new partner, it might take some time to kind of get, um, get that responsiveness back. So what I think is interesting is people are interpreting that as addiction. And I would say, no, it's just, you got in one habit and now you need to get back in the other habit. And we've seen this before. This is not completely special or addictive. It's just kind of what the body does. Uh, and so I, I don't know, like in, in the context of a relationship then, which I think you're talking about is, uh, so not when you're transitioning, but you've been in it a while. I don't know that it's really different if the other partner is maybe been less desirous over time. And so you've kind of 
guys tend to be, you know, I say steady as she goes. That is, uh, even when women are pregnant, guys just have orgasms at the same rate, man, through their whole pregnancy and afterward, like they are steady as the wind. Uh, women tend to vary a lot more in terms of how frequently they have orgasms, whether left to their own devices or partner. So this is what I'm adding to my shirt. It's going to say <laughs> world's safest penis, <laughs> steady as the wind, <laughs> orgasms. Yeah. Constant, this is how I'm advertising <laughs> myself. I, I'm not sure it's going to work that well for me. Um, so I think, you know, that may be a piece of it is just sometimes, you know, in heterosexual relationships, if the woman's kind of a little bit on her lower whatever, and the guy tends to be pretty steady, um, they may see porn more at that point, you know, and if they're doing that more then when her drive comes back, it's like, where'd you go? Mm. You know, well, I've been looking at this stuff. What do you, <laughs> wait a second, you know, <laughs> so... You know, I don't know that to be the case, but uh, I'm kind of speculating that maybe that's all that's going on. And we get so Twitterpated about, oh, my God, we're addicted to porn. What happened to my penis? And chill out, I think, you know, is uh, kind of what I'm thinking is maybe we just kind of getting back in that habit. And maybe if we don't panic about porn and then try and do, you know, what kind of intervention do we need? What kind of washout period? How do I handle this? How do I going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just, I um, mean, way more people watch way too much TV and have a much <laughs> bigger problem with that in their lives probably mm -hmm. than the porn they're viewing. But because porn has this moral attachment mm -hmm. to it and it's so sinful, it's just ruining the world. It's interesting. Yeah. Cause like with television viewing, you know, that's been associated with obesity and you know, other types of negative Imagine outcomes. depression and, <laughs> and so like, uh, but we have all these great interventions to help people reduce the amount of television they view. And generally speaking, we're not talking about television addiction. So why are we talking right. about porn addiction mm -hmm. instead of just saying, let's just help people watch less porn if they want to watch less porn. Hmm. So, um, and uh, you also made me um, think of this. Why do why do women have orgasms? In your opinion, like do males, they? do they? That's a good <laughs> question. I mean, I've never actually seen one live in person, so I don't or a real one anyway. Um, so I, I I haven't been able to verify that. But um, it, I, I mean, for males, obviously, were. Um, project if i remember from my birds and the bees uh speech <laughs> Let's see when how i said <laughs> it's a test uh, you know this this male orgasm thing kind of projects this uh this seed into a woman and then there's something ab uh, about a stork or something like yeah. that i don't i don't quite remember all of it <laughs> but um but but there's definitely a function there um mm. as far as a delivery method um and then you know, in, intuitively, you think that the orgasm is uh, feels good, so you'll do it more, so you'll have sex more. So why, why, if that's the case, then why wouldn't females have orgasms every single time? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's a lot in there. And, of course, so if you ask men and women, guys tend to have orgasms about 95% of intercourse occasions. For women, it's about 60%. It's only 95%? Yeah, 95%. And then wow. women's about 65%. So uh, okay. yeah, and maybe that's some... That seemed high to me, 65%. <laughs> wow, I am so sorry for your girlfriend. Um, so, My exes. <laughs> now you know what. I'm getting some insight here. So, um, yeah, there, there's been a 
tremendous debate, of course, about this and women, like what exactly is the function? And there have been some hilarious theories about uterine upsuck. Have you heard about the uterine upsuck? Yes, I have. Oh my God. Yeah. So all these goofy ideas about, um, you should explain the upsuck though. I don't know how this is. So there's, there's some idea that like with the, when the guys ejaculate and the, the ejaculates there inside that if a woman has an orgasm that her, uh, uterus either may um, during orgasm be dipping into the seminal pool that kind of encourages the the seed to go back to where it's supposed to be functional um, or that it may actually have some action itself and kind of sucking this uh, up more directly so maybe not just tilting into it but actually yeah like less comes out um, yeah. is the idea with the upsuck is and my it, understanding. It turns out there's uh, some good evidence discounting that idea. Yeah. So probably probably not uterine up, but it's so fun to say. <laughs> I, <just, laughs> I want to keep it around. Um, so is it vestigial? So maybe we weren't supposed to have orgasms and that's why they're so damn inconsistent. You know, is it's like, well... You're not even supposed to be there. You're just lucky you're having any. Like, like men's nipples. Yeah, uh, so this is... <laughs> But I'm going to totally throw a monkey wrench in all of this because... Why why did he just get so sad? (laughs) But you're not even using your nipple. Jeez, like, so sad. Um, (laughs) Go on. So uh, we've been lately doing an orgasm study uh, at a different location that allowed us to do it. And uh, in part, I said, we have got to measure... For orgasm in this study, we've got to verify that it's present. There are so few labs that even study orgasm. I said, we're going to do it right. So the way to do this right is to put an anal probe in. <laughs> okay. Partly I wanted to be able to say that I had an anal probe in my lab because that's awesome. But <laughs> That is pretty cool. But we're actually using this device, um, and it's really good at picking up contractions. And so generally speaking, when orgasms happen... Uh, you get somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 12 contractions. They start 0.8 seconds apart, and they increase in latency. And how long this takes varies a little bit by people, but it's highly stereotyped, and we don't think it occurs any other time. What that means is it's very specific. So you're not going to see that pattern of contractions. Uh, they occur in the, um, the vagina as well, but they're very easy uh, or much easier to pick up in the anus. So this is why we have an anal probe. And mm. <laughs> uh, Seems important. Yeah, <laughs> to actually like, oh, I don't know, make sure they're actually having an orgasm if you're studying it. Uh, right. Most labs don't, which is nuts. Uh, I think it's just because of the butt thing. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> we don't want to measure that. So, so we don't care about the butt thing and we measure it and uh, in people who will let us do that. And what we found is so far in our small sample, so hedge, 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 uh, many of the women, when they say they hit our big red button, which is actually a big red button, it's so awesome. (laughs) And they say, my orgasm is starting. And then at the end, they're supposed to say, my orgasm is done. And we look and there are no contractions. So they thought they were having an orgasm and didn't? We think that's what's happening. What? So now there's a new monkey. So at first people are like, well, clearly they're faking it. We know women fake all the time. And we're like, well, wait a minute, though. This is a lab setting. Their partner's not there. They know they're getting paid whether they do or not. We reassured them. So could they be faking? They could be. But why? Like, why in that setting would they be faking? I think there, uh, you know, there may be women who don't know that that is a common physiological component, maybe. 
and so then I started asking my colleague, my male colleague, the question. I said, well, how do women learn what an orgasm is? Like, where do you learn that? And so I, you know, I was joking. I, uh, we had uh, at this point been at the lab very late one night. Um, I was up in Pittsburgh and I told my buddy, I said, have you ever heard of compilation porn? I said, this, this things, they chain all these things together and we're going to look and just see, like, if I was a woman and I went to know what an orgasm is, I'm going to look at some orgasm videos and just watch and let's see if we can see any contractions, evidence of any contractions in the vulva in these films. And, you know, I don't know how many were in there, maybe 20 or so. And I think we saw evidence in like two of the women, you know, and it's porn. So caveat, caveat. But I think that's the, you know, I was saying, how would you know? Like if you're a female and you just had a very pleasurable sensation, you think, well, I guess that was it. Huh. But it's not. Um so how uh, so and I'm, I'm so so sixty five turns out to be high then probably so it's way lower than that probably um do do you want to take a wild guess at what that number? Our sample is small enough that it's really going to be hard to oh, guess, okay. but yeah, as you can imagine, this is something we're definitely wanting to follow up on, and we're trying to find a way to do that. Yeah, you've blown my mind. Um, <laughs> it blew our mind. We're like, what the. Because at first, you know, it happens one time and you think, oh, that, yeah, should we tell her? Should we tell her she didn't have an orgasm? <laughs> but then you see it again and again and we're like checking the instrument. We're like, is that thing it? Could, it, could she have expelled it? Could she, you know, we're checking. And I was like, all right, let me try. <laughs> you do all these things to check and see, did we do something wrong? Are we not picking it up? Are we... Um, we called our colleague in Germany who actually had done the study really well in the past and like had, we thought he had recorded orgasms. We looked at his traces and we're like, dude, where are their orgasms? Like he had written papers about this and we thought he had done it. And so we then started really challenging his data and saying, we don't see these contractions in your data either. Hmm. Where are they? Oh, man. So there's no such thing as a female orgasm. Well, so we see them in some women, but that's the thing is it's very uh, inconsistent. We have no idea what, you know, what differentiates women who do or don't. And, you know, it still could be possible. Maybe we're not recording something right. Um, But we sure have been trying and testing our instruments a lot to make sure that that's not the case. Oh, man. It's just like more (laughs) stuff to be in my head about next time uh, I'm... I'm uh, <laughs> deciding not to be celibate. Um, <laughs> does does this stuff mess with your head? Like when you're researching like um, vaginal tears and like crazy stuff like that all day long, and then does it does it uh, damper your uh, libido at all? Is that too personal <laughs> of a question? Uh, no. So I yeah, I mean, people have asked that a lot informally, I guess, and I I mean, I find it to be the opposite. I think it's you know you're put in a position where you you think about sex all day, you talk about sex all day. I wouldn't do this if I didn't think it was fun. Um, right. And. So no, I think it's, you know, the field is fascinating and there's just more, every time you turn one thing over, you know, there's six more things you have to follow up on. And I mean, this orgasm thing is a great example. You know, I thought it would be interesting and fun, you know, to have my, the anal probe in the lab, but, <laughs> but I didn't realize we weren't going to freaking find evidence. Did I, it like come in a package and you, you're all uh, like excited when it showed up? We and- built it. You built it? We built it. That's amazing. <laughs> you built your own we, anal probe. This stuff is not off the <laughs> shelf, man. You got to you gotta have Arduino boards. You got to be able to solder. You have to be able to figure stuff out. 
Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's a, I, I knew at some point in my life I was going to meet a woman that made her own anal probe. I just didn't think it would be a scientist. It's today. <laughs> um, and um, do you have, uh, I hope you got my email, do you have a, uh, I have each guest plug a charity each week? I did. Um, and I would say HRC, Human HRC. Rights Campaign. Absolutely. Um, HRC. See, awesome. Um, I will put a link on the website and awesome. everything. Um, and so, so you're having your people are having sex in your lab then? Not yet. Not yet. Soon. That's next. Uh, are you going to put them? I've seen like the video of like uh, MRI of people having intercourse. Are you trying to um, replicate that kind of stuff? Uh, not exactly. So what we have now, uh, we use mainly electroencephalography or EEG in my lab, which is if you've ever seen pictures of people with all the crazy wires coming off their head, mm. that's uh, the tool I use more often. But we have a Bluetooth version, so it has no wires, which means we can take it outside the lab. So really? we're putting it on people engaging in uh, the normal activities of their daily life, which in some case happens to include sex. Oh, wow. I want to wear your weird helmet thing. I've got a weird helmet thing here. Uh, all right. <laughs> let's, let's strap it on. I, mean, I, would, uh, I, would, I would love to know. I've, I've had my, I had my brain scanned while writing jokes by it was the second oh, cool. episode. Uh-huh. Um, and now, now I could have one while viewing porn or something. Um, and then I'd have to have you back on. We'll talk about it off air. You don't, you don't need to make any commitments right now. Um, but yeah, uh, well, well that's interesting. So, so you have, um, but right now you just have people masturbating in your lab. Uh, not masturbating because if you, as soon as you let someone do it to themselves, you have no idea what they're doing. So like some labs do this, they let people masturbate and we're like, well, but how do you know what they, like, was that guy super vigorous? Was she very, you know, maybe she just needed the pocket rocket and she needed the plug-in, you know, mega Sibian, whatever. So, oh, so vibrator only stuff? I- vibrator only and we control it. Our computer controls it. really and it works super well like we so we wanted to automate this because we wanted to be able to characterize exactly uh, how much stimulation went into the system to be able to say with some confidence like this is you know what was provided and this is what we got out uh, in terms of brain response and so um we decided we wanted to try and automate it and we figured okay we'll give this a go but if it doesn't work we're gonna let people switch and they can do it themselves if they want to towards the end and it turns out the stimulation pattern that we completely pulled out of our you know we just talked about it we're like how should this work i don't know what do you think what do you think if you're in cosmo lately maybe um <laughs> you know we we just made it up because there's nothing published on it and uh, it works pretty well for men and women for men and women. Mm-hmm. What are you using for men? Vibrator. A flashlight kind of thing? Mm, it's uh, They both use the Hitachi Magic Wand, which is a very popular um, vibrator uh, that's marketed still as a back massager. The company refuses to market it sexually, which is kind of interesting. Mm. But... Um, there are attachments, and so there was one that's like an extender that we put over the clitoral hood in women, and there's also one that's a sleeve. So we have guys put put mm. that on. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> it's they always say it, it's interesting because they'll say like, oh, you know, I I've seen those of course, but that's for my girlfriend, that's for my wife, and it works. 
perfectly fine on y'all too. Really? Yeah. I'm having tr- trouble picturing it a little bit. <laughs> they this, always it's do. It's just a weird sleeve thing. Yeah. So it's hmm. um I'm trying to think maybe f- three or four inches or so, and there's uh, there's some fins on the inside that kind of help keep it. So when they initially put it on, of course, their penis is flaccid, and they just put it in this device. And we leave the room so they can have their privacy and uh, do all the things they need to do. And then our computer is just turning this on and off at the intervals that we've programmed it to do. And, um, yeah, it works pretty well. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I'm fascinated. And uh, thanks so much for joining me and explaining all of this amazing (laughs) stuff that you do to me. Um, It's fun. And um, yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe I'll I'll talk her into letting me wear her um, helmet thing around and uh, and getting some my um, brain activity. Um, all right, thank you guys so much for listening. Next week on the program, I sat down with three zookeepers to talk about zookeeping. How awesome is that? I am killing it in the booking guests category. How much fun is this show? Um, Awesome. You guys are great. Thanks for the support. Keep sharing, subscribing, reviews. You know the deal. And I'll see you next week. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> <laughs>